Hello, I'm Phil Svitek, and I'm both honored and privileged that in this episode, I get to interview AJ Young, who is a cinematographer. Now, I know him because he DP'd one of my dear friends' debut feature film called Always Lola, which is available on demand right now through Amazon, iTunes, Google, and it was a festival darling, and audiences, since it came out in December, are loving it, so I highly encourage you to check it out. Now, AJ is a cinematographer who's worked on numerous feature films, and that's one of the first questions I ask him about. Um, but specifically, this episode deals with Always Lola. So uh, it's not imperative that you outright you know, see the movie before this, but it will help make a lot of sense. You know, We do talk about ver- various specifics, um, although I wouldn't necessarily consider them like outright spoilers, um, but just be warned either way. Uh, One quick thing about the interview, we did have some technical issues, unfortunately, um, you know, our connection was via Zoom, and, you know, it was was, uh, spotty at times, so, you know, I did my best to kind of piece together an edit to make sure it flowed as much as possible, and, you know, eventually, AJ turned off his camera, and that seemed to to help, Uh, so during those moments, I play clips from Always Lola, if you're watching on the video side, um, again, I apologize, uh, you know, for for those technical issues, but nonetheless, the interview still has a ton of insights in it, and so I hope you'll forgive the few glitches here and there, um, which hopefully are not that noticeable thanks to some of the editing I did for it. But without further ado, here's my interview with AJ Young. He's also done uh, 14 other features. Have you added another one since the time I knew you? Or we're still at fifteen. I don't know. Total. I mean, you know, it's 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 work. It's a job. You know, I think I do have another one in the books. You know, coming up. So, oh, nice. Uh, I feel very fortunate to say I'm losing track of the number now. That's good. <laughs> it's, well, it's a happy place to be in. I want to, you know, so from the brief sort of period that I've known you, you have a very brilliant mind, and um, in the in the spirit of which this is intended. You've done so many of these indie features, but like, I feel like you have such a capacity and like, um, I'm not speaking ill will of always Lola. Like it's so beautifully done, but you're like handcuffed in a way of like, okay, your budget is so minimal. And I know (laughs) it seems like, like you have such knowledge of how to utilize these tools. So I just want to get your perspective on like, yeah, just the approach of, of cinematography in that way. And just using creativity more so than like just dumping a fire hose of money at a lot of solutions. Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I'm very fortunate that early on in my career, especially in film school, I um, listened and admired to a lot of, you know, cinematographers who had started shooting documentaries or, you know, even some of the big ones um, where they didn't have a lot of money, you know, and they focused more on the reason that you're making a decision rather than how to do it. Because if you know why you're doing something for a particular scene or a movie in general or a sequence of shots, the reason, if you know the why, the how is very simple at that point. Because you, if you know what your reason is, you're like, okay, well, how am I going to do it? Either I have a lot of money and I can do it with all these things, or I have no money and I have to figure out how to do it with all these little things. And independent film I'll shoot where, yes, I would love to shoot on like this huge, you know, camera with like a giant lens and, you know, all the, you know, the, the doodads that go with it, but they really can't afford it. So I think a small little mirrorless camera or when I started out a DSLR like a 5D, it's just fine, you know, focus on the story, focus on the character and, you know, getting the audience involved, I think helps you a lot more than focusing on what you don't have gear wise. 
Absolutely. So uh, let's dive into Always Lola. And for context, you know, I've referenced it, obviously, but for the sake of the people, it's a uh, it's sort of a coming of age story, but also a grief story um, about this group of friends um, who are going off to college and then they end up losing a friend and then sort of them dealing with, for lack of a better word, the fallout of that, you know, mm-hmm. like, what does that mean that this person is no longer there? And they were really the glue that held this group together. Um and you know uh micro budget sort of movie but you would you can never tell in that way and um one of the things that uh jeff the director talks about is you essentially handheld him through the entire process like you were his film school in a sense (laughs) so i want to get your perspective on what what does that mean you know it's so this this is going to happen to a lot of cinematographers and they get to their career um we were joking about at the top of the of the whole episode where you know, I've shot so many features now, I'm starting to lose track. And it's not just feature films, it's short films, it's commercials, music videos, a lot of stuff when they get out of films or when they start career as a director where their development cycle is so long and then they can enter production and they do the internet and then they do the production and it ends and then they're in the editing for so long and then development and then two years go by and you're like, I'm shooting my next movie and the DP's already done so many projects since then. They're just like an actor, you know? So inevitably you're going to, as a cinematographer, learn how a production is shot a lot quicker than a director will. And especially an independent film early on, you're going to be kind of their rock, their person they can lean on to be like, hey, you know, this is the scene. This is what I want to do. But like, how do I do it? And, you know, I've joked with Jeff like this um, when we were in prep for Always Lola. You know, there's only so many ways you can shoot a scene in a car because it's just so contained you're it's a person in the driver's seat person in the passenger seat and they're talking like you you don't have a lot of options to shoot it and eventually in a cinematographer's career which i'm nowhere near there but at some point you've shot so many projects you're like yeah i've shot everything under the sun like how do you want to do it are we mixing these things together doing this yeah this is how we would do it if you want to do it like that and so when definitely when jeff was saying he was really relying on me for, you know, like a film school education. It, it wasn't like teaching him, this is the artistic decision you have to do. This is what makes a good movie. It's me trying to get into his head, understand what he wants and says, oh, I see what you want to do. This is how we can actually do it. You know, this is this is the shot you want to do, or this is like how you want it to come across. You should put the camera here and use this lens. And that's what you do as, as the work professional. Um, if we had a production designer on the movie, um, it would be the same thing. Production designer would say, ah, I see how you want this set to be, you know, dressed or designed. This is what we should do. Or blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the easiest one for a lot of people to, to relate with what Jeff was saying is when it comes to like stunts, you lean on a stunt coordinator because they're going to tell you what sells for the camera. What eight on. Let's do this. It's so undone. Actually, if you were to go into an actual like fight, <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? This isn't fighting, you know? Yeah. So talk to me about like the decisions for, uh, you know, that, that went into it. You guys shot anamorphic, you know, very sort of, um, you know, cinema scope esque. Uh, so yeah, like talk, like walk, like, was that like his decision in that way? Or like, based on, as you're saying, the conversations, you're like, this is what you want. You know, it's a good question. So, um, I love shooting anamorphic. I think it's my favorite format to shoot on. I think the way the lenses distort the image and the way it it adds a a layer of humanism 
to the image. Um, and I, what I mean by humanism is you can tell there's a human touch in the camera because it's flawed. I think now lenses, especially brand new lenses that are not anamorphic, they're so crisp and clean and sharp that, you know, it, the images look almost sterile. And so for me, I've gone towards a route of which a lot of cinematographers are of let's do older lenses or lenses with some characters and funkins them. And I think anamorphic gives you all of those, you know, buttons, but it can be modern lenses still, and it can still come across as, you know, real. Anamorphic, given the budget, would help elevate the look a bit more. We always associate cinema with the anamorphic look now. It's just ingrained in ourselves, I think, as, you know, cinema goers that, you know, if it's a movie, it's suddenly letterbox and you can see the, you know, the bokeh is all weird and the lens flares, et cetera. We didn't lean into that, like lens flares or anything, but it's those subtle cues that clue us in that this is a movie that we're watching. And so I pitched Jeff on that as like, shoot this movie spherical and, you know, fit 16.9 and it would look just as so Jeff and I sourced the uh, anamorphic lenses in Ohio. And, you know, I brought my own anamorphic lens for the flashback scenes because I love dabbling in lenses and I built my own. And I said, hey, Jeff, let's use these modern anamorphic lenses for the present day scenes. And when we go back in time, let's use like my DIY anamorphic lens. It's just as good. It's sharp, but it's got a little bit different character and funk to it that when we go back in time, things feel a little different. So the audience can be subtly cued, you know, where are we in the story and what does this mean for these characters? Uh, and that was really the biggest decision going into the anamorphic uh, was those factors. Did you guys do camera tests ahead of time and like perhaps yeah. some color timing? Okay. You yeah, did, we did. did. Yeah. So we flew out, I think it was two weeks before production. Um, Jeff uh, flew me out to Ohio where he was. And we had the camera, we had the lenses, and we just tested it out. You know, we went to various locations that we were going to shoot at. We just filmed some tests with some, did some, you know, some motion tests to see which smoke grenades would work for the color. It was really helpful. And I think it sold Jeff on the look. Um, and I'm a huge advocate of testing. I think whenever you're doing any project, even if it's the simplest of stories, just test out the look, test out whatever should be tested, just so you can go into production with confidence that this decision is going to work. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, absolutely. Uh, wanna like as far as everything, what was the lighting package like, right? Um, because obviously, you know, lenses uh, are a whole one thing, but you know, how do you like pitch them anything? Because I mean, it's a lot of it, let's roughly estimate half of it is in nighttime in a place that uh, doesn't have lighting. Like there's not street lamps all over the place that you can maybe like, all right, well, at least we'll place them under the street light and that'll light them up. You know, you have to like create it pretty much artificially, you know? Yeah, we're in a forest. Uh, I joked with Jeff and Prep, the, the worst words a producer or DP can see on a script for a micro budget movie is exterior night forest. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it didn't have animals and kids. So. At least it didn't have animals and kids. But if it was rain, I'd be like, okay, you're, 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 uh, you're very cruel. Um, the lighting is key. And I'll get to the lighting package we shot on. But my lighting package is really ultimately determined by the camera body we shot on because that essentially could tell me how much light I would need or how little light I would need. And I told Jeff the camera we should shoot on was the Panasonic S1H. It's a mirrorless hybrid camera that can do, you know, photos, but it's really like a video camera. Like everyone admits like, no, this is just a video camera. But the camera um, has a really high sensitive, you know, ISO range. Um, it's called dual ISO for the non-tech people listening. 
And essentially it means that I can shoot into the night. Um, not exactly. Like you saw the light, it many lights or one small cap, like bigger light because the camera is a lot more sensitive. And so Jeff agreed that that was the right camera to shoot on, which we did a test. That was the test. We also filmed on the camera to test it. And we liked the look and everything. We're like, cool, all right, let's use that for production. And that I think ultimately led to, to the success, but affordable lights that are away that because the camera was so sensitive, it made it seem and feel like it was on a giant crane they're just so sensitive that it can elevate these you know smaller productions that we can make a really good looking image with a lot less so our lighting package that we had i remember picking up all the gear myself with jeff and we could fit it all inside a minivan and i was so proud <laughs> but it was uh man, i think i actually remember all the heads that we had too because it wasn't a lot we had for our biggest bright light that we had which wasn't too big it, it's about the size of my head so it's not that big um, we used, it's called the Joker 800. Um, it's an HMI. So I'm just going to say all these words, everyone can Google them and look it up, but it's a very bright light. And, you know, we powered it off a generator in the forest. Um, in addition, I use them a lot and they're very versatile and really handy. I use two light mat fours. Um, they're big, soft LED source lights, very low power draw, but they're very bright. And so we use that nine times out of 10, either for the key light or for the fire light, you know, fire is great. And I told you this camera's really sensitive and the fire could give you exposure on the face, but a cinematographer likes control. So I'd rather just turn on the fire effect on the LED and save the heat from the actors because it was hot. Some of those scenes where we had the fire, they were right next to it. And I remember every time it would cut the actress, were like, oh God, it's so hot in my face. Cause I'd be like, you gotta get closer to the fire so you can get the exposure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I think that was it. I think that was the three lights and like C-stands and flag sandbags, you know. So oftentimes, particularly, it was easy with like the daytime exteriors. The interiors like already providing me and what can I supplement and add to it? You know, so if you look in there, there's all these big windows. Great. That's my key light. So I'm just going to supplement, give a bit control. So have that light map be in the right position. So the light stays consistent because the sun's going to move throughout the day while we're filming in there. But my key light doesn't have to because I've already established it. Just looking at it like that and thinking of it like a documentarian, like, okay, I don't really have much control over here, but what I do have control, I'm going to focus on and control that. Um, and, you know, that's the look of the movie and, and embracing that simplicity, I think, really helps, especially because um, we have a really small crew. So I couldn't just be like, put all these things here, you know, it's just not yeah. doable. Absolutely. Um, so it's interesting, like, I, I love the documentary background. I kind of have that. And for me, as a director, I generally, with the actors, I give them a lot of range. I'm like, listen, whatever feels right in the moment, like if you want to get up, pick up this cup, do whatever, like my job, you know, because I at, at the moment I still direct and shoot. Um, that's sort of my in, like, you know, how I look at it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm like to them, it's my job to capture you. You know, because I'm very much like purely in that, like, I'll tell them if it's, you know, it's a wide shot or what I'm going for, if there's, there might be a specific mark here and there. But overall, it's like, I'm not trying to restrict them based on the camera. I want the camera to them. And so I'm kind of curious how you guys approach just blocking in general, uh, you know, for you guys specifically. You know, that's a really good question. Um, I definitely... When I'm in prep with the director, um, I always, especially in an independent film, you're probably locking in locations until a week out. Maybe sometimes during production, you're locking in a location. So you can't look at it ahead of time and visualize, hey, this is where I want the block and the intricate camera movement. Kind of just have to like look at it day of and be like, okay, here's our blocking, here's what we're going to do. Um, but sometimes you can't. Some, like, you know, if there's two people sitting at a coffee table talking to each other, 
yeah, you know you're blocking. That's pretty straightforward. You can go into it. I think with Always Lola, our biggest blocking scene, which we didn't know it was going to be until the day of, was, uh, this is going to be spoiler alert for everyone watching, is when um, uh, Camilla, the main character, discovers a huge secret that Catherine has been hiding from everyone. And it's this big, you know, blowout scene that involves the entire cast at the campsite. And it we devoted a whole half day to this or maybe it was a whole day i can't remember because it was like in prep on a micro budget film you kind of have to talk to your director and this comes in hand with blocking because blocking informs your shots that you're going to have you have to figure out especially on a micro budget movie what are your three four big scenes that you want to throw your resources on and what i mean by that is you can take your time get coverage you know do as many takes as you need um light it really well you know whatever takes the time to make those scenes and i think we we came up with our three or four for the movie and this was our biggest one this is the climax i think it's the turning point of the film and so we said okay let's devote almost a whole day or a half day it's going to drain the actors emotionally it will um take time to shoot it with coverage wise so that's what we devoted on and we were talking through the scene and we're like we really don't know what the blocking is going to be for this so i think on the day in the morning let's just take like an hour and just workshop it with the actors you know they come in they go they you know hit their spots they see this isn't working let me try it here so it was a bit like theater you know the directors is working with them side watching being like okay i think i'm seeing typing now because to your point it is like let the actors do the scene and they'll figure out, you know, like, oh, this is the right motivation. At some point, like, okay, I got it. This is exactly what I'm going to do every time, like theater. So it's not entirely spontaneous Spontaneous after a certain point. And so that really helped us, like, that. I think an hour or so of just working the scene, getting in the right positions, and me watching, going like, okay, now I can kind of see what we need to do with the coverage. And I think what we talked about at the beginning was the kind of, like, a sweeping master shot of the entire thing, where we would start on... Camilla walking up, but then transfer over. And we weren't trying to be like some clever one shot Jeff was going to live on for the whole scene. It was like, let's just get us established because we know we owe some person, we owe covers. And this person, this was our big scene we wanted to do. But it was so helpful just allowing Jeff to work with the actors and find the space there. And, you know, the rehearsal, because it was such a big scene, Jeff was, I think he was like, keep it low, 50% energy. I want you to save it for the camera. And most actors know that, but it's hard when you're doing a good script like this that you just want to be like, let's just go right now. But we took our time, it took a while. And my concern with that scene was keeping the lighting throughout the day because it was daytime. Um, the sun was on one side as we started shooting the scene and it started going onto that side. And so for a DP and most um, other the crew members, we kind of want to know the blocking ahead of time so we can make the best decisions for consistency of the camera, particularly with the sunlight. And so once we knew what the blocking was going to be, I told Jeff, we should shoot these angles this direction because the sun's going to be over there. And then eventually, once we get to this way, the sun should be over there and behind them, and it'll look consistent on camera. Rather than like, let's just shoot it in story order. We're like, let's shoot it this direction, that direction. That's like basic stuff. But you can only do that if you have blocking. Now, I... I try to remember there were scenes or moments where we just embraced the spontaneity of a moment of a moment. I, it was so long ago. I really can't remember, yeah. but this does, it does happen a lot for me in independent film and I want to restrict actors much with have to hit this mark, have to hit this light, or you have to hit this spot. My frame looks so good, but if it doesn't work for the performance of the story, then what are we doing? Um, 
sometimes that's happened and you have to give them what creates a better performance and a better story. Um, sometimes it has to work that way. Sometimes it doesn't. And so being able to roll punches and, and being collaborator with the actors and a director, I think ultimately helps. That was long. I hope that was right. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, the, the, I mean, there's no right answer. The right answer is whatever worked. Right. Uh, so, and I mean, certainly you guys captured a lot of great performances. Um, you know, one of the, one of the interesting parts for me as a director is always, um, well, A, I guess I'm wondering, do you guys shot list, storyboard, but then also more specifically for me as a director, like there's sometimes very specific things that I know I need. And um, between you and I, don't tell the actors, uh, I'm like, I don't really need to do this entire scene. I don't want to do this entire scene. I just need you to turn around and say this one line. That's the angle that I need. I don't need anything else. Everything else is a waste of your time and energy and my everything else. Um, but I just want to kind of know from your experience how, you know, you might approach like very specific moments that you know you need, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, but while also being respectful of people and like their process. That's a very, very good question. And it, it's a common problem. Um, I would say not just an independent film, even on big budget movies. Sometimes, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to need. When you cut from one shot to another, you're saying, you cut to someone listening, you're telling the audience there's something going on here. And they're going to connect the dots between those two shots. You know, I think it's it, it's it's psychological effect. I can't remember what it was called. Um but it, someone early in the, in the 1920s, you know, kind of coined the phrase or you know, tested it out. But basically, the audience is going to make an emotion, an emotional connection between angles, between shots. And so whenever you cut away, you have to have a reason to cut to something because you're saying something in that cut. Cinematographer's job is to tell a story of the shot, you know, the composition, the camera movement. You know, we, we, we say something with the composition so that when the director puts two shots together, they mean something together. Um, and so... It's really hard in prep to exactly know, oh, I need this one moment <laughs> for my edit, you know, easier in animation because you storyboard the whole thing and, and you animate the storyboard and you're like, oh, this is working Let's add another shot. And we only render what we need, but harder in live action because sometimes the actors give you something. You're like, I did not expect that. And I need that as a special. And that's when you can be like, hey, I'm just going to come in for a tight shot. I just need you to say that one line. Most of the time, the actors get it. Sometimes everyone just doesn't get it. And the director is like, listen, I just need you to turn and say this line <laughs> like that, you know? And at some point you kind of just have to trust the director and be like, okay, totally. Yep. You're going to do your thing. That's what you want. We, we can call it totally go for it. But when it comes to the prep, I try to plan for that, you know, getting those moments. And, and it, it comes with a lot of talk, talking with Jeff. So when it comes to in prep with a director, I like to create that space where, you know, you can set them up for success with the edit so that they can get that specific moment that they need or allow them to see the moments that they only need to capture. And, you know, a, it's a lot of conversation with the director of, you know, asking them about, about this scene. You know, what are we trying to do here? What are we trying to say? Who's this for? Um you know, why is the actor saying this? Not actor, why is the character saying this? Or why is the character written walking over here and turning around? Is that something we should really be paying attention to as an audience member? Uh, those kind of conversations 
to, I like to call them like special shots, but you know, they're also called inserts or cutaways or whatever you want to call them. But I call them special because there are reason. You know, there's a reason why we need to get this specific moment. We don't need to film the whole thing, just the specific moment. Because I know you're going to want to use it in the edit. You know, straightforward ones that, you know, if you're keeping track um, is like, you know, characters talking to a character and you cut to their hand and they're like clenching something in their pocket. The audience is like, oh, hey, he's got a gun in there. He's going to do something with that. You know, you don't well, need you guys to- you guys had a lot of those because I mean the whole thing's predicated on like these mementos essentially that I mean it's a it's a scavenger hunt movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes it would be uh, a shot where we're like, hey, we just need you to hold us for a few seconds. Or if it's a person's reaction. Yeah, actually, let's go back to that big scene with um the big reveal that Camilla finds that Catherine was hiding. There were some moments your entrance from the tent and you're standing and watching and you walk away and we would actually be like if i remember it would be like okay we're gonna go to this line and then we're gonna pause and you're gonna pick up on this line a couple pages later so we didn't have to just roll on like eight minutes of somebody just watching you know because like we're not gonna use that you know stuff yeah. like that and that's very straightforward um sometimes in scenes on the day you realize oh i need to get this quick shot because i'm realizing i need it after watching the performance or doing these different angles and and that's i think the the space i like to create is get your bases covered you know like what what you know do we need the film for this and then what coverage do we need and then hopefully we have time on the day where oh we actually really need this next shot or this extra shot in this scene yeah i mean uh you know in that sense like it's for me I don't do storyboards, but I do shot lists and, you know, it's, it kind of comes from my sort of, we used to do a gardening show and we used to literally block it. And in that sense, we'd be like, okay, we know we need a wide, medium, close up. And here's all the inserts that we like, we just got it such down to a science. So now for me, like when I block a scene, I'm like, okay, cool. I know I need this, this, and this, and that's kind of how I operate. So it's fun to uh, see how other people do it. But yeah, I mean, for me, Honestly, I always just use a line script. Like that's my sort of, you know, sh- shot listed out. No, because the main thing for me, I just don't want to ever get to a point. It's like uh, there's a moment if I don't have enough coverage or like if it's a specific moment, and I don't have the coverage. So a line script to me is like my biggest weapon going into uh, cinematography. Absolutely. And I kind of do that as a cinematographer when I break down the script. I, I, I kind of line it every now and then. Some scenes you don't need to. You're like, this is one eighth of a page the one shot were good but when it's like a heftier dialogue scene especially this movie because it's an ensemble film you kind of have to make sure your bases are covered like did i miss anyone and it's hard to do that in production especially on an independent film because there's just so much happening going on in your head you're gonna forget so do it in a calm space at home some coffee you're just lining the script and be like oh so-and-so needs a shot here Better make note about that <laughs> as opposed to be like it's nighttime i'm exhausted get the camera over there i think we got everyone let's move on you know yeah, yeah. it's hectic doing production absolutely um speaking of that big scene so you guys did true single cam um i'm wondering you know for something like that uh you know did you guys consider multiple cameras just to speed things along um for the sake of the actors yourselves you know multi-cam especially the anamorphic lenses the double up on everything two cameras two sets of lenses and then it's a lot of dosy doing with a camera operator and then you have to get a camera operator <laughs> which we just didn't have on this production um which we did but not the case uh, multi-cam produ- uh, productions with 
itself on big scenes like this. And then sometimes it just starts to become a single cam show. <laughs> just like, if you know how you want to scene, it, it really, the cameras are just getting stacked on top of each other. You're like, okay, you're just on a tighter lens. I'm on a wider lens and we're good to go. Or, you know, there was one I did, I did a movie a couple of years ago and there were a few scenes where B cameras just hanging out at the truck all day. Cause I'm like, this is just single cam scene guys. It's not going to be faster. We have two cameras because, you know, <laughs> the lighting is so particular. Um, but we talked about it on this one and, and it probably would have helped on this particular scene because the way the lighting worked, it would have been great. Um, but we also knew going in, we had one camera. So let's just dedicate the time so we can get the different angles. Let's light it in a way that's really simple. Hence, it was just daytime and it was cloudy. So it actually helped us a lot keeping things consistent. Uh, but it was a conversation and I don't discount second camera. There are times like a second camera or a third camera, depending on the scene, can make life so much easier, especially for the actors, because you can exhaust them with a scene like that. You know, they can only do it so many times. I hear a siren. I'm going to wait for the siren to go, but I think I finished it just in time. That's uh, that's another big component of uh, filmmaking is sound. So that's nice. Yeah. I know sound's not your your thing necessarily, but you did mention you guys had generators. Um, I also know you guys had quite the nature sounds. So it just, I don't know. Uh, as I said, sound's not your department, but you know, how did you guys, I always feel like in a weird way, visuals and sound are kind of in opposition of each other where like the, the you know the sound guy is like trying to get as close as possible and like the dp is like get out of my shot you know there's that joke if, if you want to know where to put a light just look for the boom operator because <laughs> they're usually where you got to put a stand and i feel so bad for them because they're just doing their job when i'm like yeah i'm sorry man i gotta put a stand there and you knew it too because it's the spot that's not gonna be in the way but it's now in the way a good cinematographer um, and a good um, location sound mixer should never be in opposition of each other. They should always be working with each other. Um, I've worked with really good sound teams that are very observant. They're seeing where lights are being put. They're seeing how the blocking is going to go. They're on top of it with not just getting actors mic'd, but with uh, talking to the grip and electric department saying, hey, I see you have a generator there. Can you do this or that to help? Um, dampen the sound so it's not too loud or, or you know or put it over there and we shouldn't hear it um we didn't have that size of a crew to work with each other on that so it was really it was just me and our location sound mixer who was also the boom operator her name was uh carrie stevens she was fantastic um and she would always give great recommendations i'm like hey i can hear the thing still you know maybe we should put it over there and i knew kind of going in because i've worked on production before you have to create what's basically like a little sound tent for the generator we didn't have a big generator it's called a 2000 uh, watt suitcase generator because you can carry it like a suitcase it's still pretty loud so we basically took a whole bunch of ferny pads and we made like a little tent to put around it like a box tent because you got to give it air to breathe but that basically kind of muffles the sound and directs it away from the set and we had to put the generator as far away as we could but still can get enough electricity from it um and then you know do our job and i think that worked great carrie said it was fine you know they didn't <laughs> didn't have any issues or complaints and i guess the sound mix went really well so yay um but i think a good cinematographer needs to keep sound in mind you know there are times when of course you're like yeah we sound doesn't really matter for this shot so we're gonna do this or that you know but it, it, what are we doing if we can't capture the sound properly? You know, what are, what are we doing if we can't get enough light on the character? That's my opinion. And so if we need to do something to make it better for sound, uh, let's do it. You know, I think that we're all team players. We're here to make a movie. Let's, let's work on it. 
Well, my, uh, I always laugh. I, um, I was just re-watching the Oppenheimer behind the scenes and um, uh, one of the Safdie brothers who's in the movie, he was joking that, you know, they would yell action and then he just turned around and be like, is that like that camera sounds broken. It's so loud. Was it? And then Chris is like, no, 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 it's fine. That's, it's that's fine. Camera. Do an audio take later. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, uh, um, yeah, the, the juxtaposition of all of that is just is wild to me because like, I mean, I've never worked with an IMAX camera, but, uh, you know, I've certainly worked with film and just that concept, shh, you know, like, um, yeah, that I imagine that is like a sound person's worst nightmare. <laughs> well, you know, in that case, they knew what they're getting into. They're like, oh, they're bringing the IMAX camera out. We're just rolling reference audio for this, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and there's times like... Um, I did a movie or I did a TV show pilot a couple of years ago where there was a big exterior rain scene and it was awesome. Like you had this rain rig rigged up, we had lightning and everything. And I'm just being like, yeah, we're not getting sound on this. This is going to be ADR. This <laughs> is just loud. You can't hear it. They're going to try. And they did. They got really good sound. I'm curious. Did you guys do audio only takes um, on Lola specifically? I'm trying to remember if we did. I know we did. There's there's definitely audio only takes. That's a thing. I can't remember if we did. Maybe if we were like, hey, there's a weird air conditioner noise or there's a weird um, car thing. I know we frequently did wild lines, which is, you know, hey, it's just I need you to record this one line real quick while you're still in the moment because a plane flew over on it and we don't need to redo the whole scene. We can just get that line. Or it's like, it's the other end of a phone call. Let's just get that line because we don't need to shoot the other end of the phone call. Um, I definitely, you know, if we have the time, I think an audio only take is sometimes beneficial and sometimes not. You really have to ask yourself, like, is this something that we need? Um, and it's really like up to the sound mixer to say, hey, listen, this was just garbage. I couldn't get anything because of all these different moving elements. So we should just do an audio only take. And I think in a movie like Oppenheimer, that totally makes sense. Like that IMAX camera is so loud. Like, yeah, they did an audio only take because <laughs> otherwise they have nothing. Um, but an independent film, I think it's, it's unfortunately a slight luxury, not wild lines, like doing one line's fine. We're doing like a whole scene audio wise. They'll eat up your schedule too much. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I always look at like it's catch 22 because in, in many ways, like I, I always try to force an audio only take um, because it just ends up being so much better than ADR, especially on the indie level. Yeah. Um, you know, a actors aren't used to looping um, and obviously like the quality of the looping, you know, you have to then put it into a specific scene, whereas, it, you know, and, and so between the performance and everything else, uh, the sound quality itself. Yeah. I, I just find as, as painful as it may be, I do find them very beneficial for indie filmmakers. You know, I, I completely agree. And, and that is definitely a conversation between the, the mixer and the director, you know, as a DP, it's really not my place to say anything. Cause I'm always like, no, I want to shoot, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, sound is the bad sound is the first thing you're going to notice in a movie. And so I'm always a proponent of like, Hey, if we need to get it for better sound, let's do it. You know, particularly like room tone, I'll always get room tone very quickly. And that's like a basic one. Everybody knows that. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, to that end, I mean, you guys shop, Pretty much, what is it, 12 days? What's the official? I think it was count? 12 days, yeah. Um, that's that's quite considerable. It's pretty, it's pretty quick. Um, yeah. Jeff wrote a very tight script, which I think was doable. Uh, I'm trying to remember if it was 90 pages on the dot or something, but it, it was short. Um, especially at this budget level, you can expect to do about 10 pages a day. Um, and so 
the secret to success, which is why I told Jeff on this, was minimal coverage, maximum impact. That was a phrase someone shared with me a few years ago, and I've really lived by it ever since. And if we look at a scene, we have to ask ourselves, you know, how can we get this with as little different angles as possible? You got to get a whole bunch of angles, but really on the whole, you just got to ask yourself, like, what are we trying to capture here? And how many angles do we need? And how little of them can we just do it on? It's easy when you're talking like a, a really short scene that's like one eighth of a page, like a character just walks in, says one line, and that's it. That's one shot. Let's get that in one shot. It gets harder when page, when scenes are like a page, page and a half. You really have to ask yourself, do I need to get coverage on this scene? Or can this be a, I hate to say clever one shot, but can it be a clever one shot? Can we do it in one angle, maybe with a cutaway? Um, because it is still a relatively simple scene. And that's how we approached it. And so earlier I mentioned we had to pick like our three or four big scenes. It was like, okay, those were our three or four big scenes that we wanted to devote time to get coverage on, to shoot different angles, to really, you know, get that done. And then everything else, our rule is one, two angles, we have to move on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that was our success, honestly. Um, I been on productions where they don't approach it like that. They still try to shoot it as if it's a 20 or 25 day movie, um, thinking that they can get coverage for every single scene and they go way over schedule and way over budget. Um, and it's just, in my experience, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's, that's why again, like, I don't think there's ultimately a right or wrong choice. It's whatever works. And for us, you know, um, so far because of that limitation, you know, for me, I've always liked to explore angles. And so I was like, all right, let's do uh, two cameras. And I've been lucky enough in that sense where, you know, I'm essentially balleting with the uh, other, uh, you know, I call my co-cinematographer, you know? Yeah. Um, so that always helps in that way where, where you're just in symbiosis with somebody and able to do that. Um, oh, yeah. Second camera can get you a whole bunch of new angles really quick. So that, I, that's another reason. <laughs> another reason yeah. to get a- <laughs> but again, it has to be, you know, I mean, I think if anything, we're all, we're both on the same page of it needs to be deliberate because I've yeah. certainly, you know, seen people and novices of like, all right, let's just, okay, we've got three cameras. Let's just all put them up. And it's like, well, what are you even shooting? Yeah. Where are you know what you're shooting with the one. Exactly. You know, I totally agree. You know, I, I joke a lot sometimes because some, some, times we want to overcover a scene. We want to cut away too many times. And I'm just like, crazy idea guys what if we just let the actors act and we just watch them a crazy idea just you know put the camera here and just let them do their thing it's captivating already you know um so i I think the simpler answer is always the better choice for the story because it'll come across as complex even though it's a really simple decision it'll look there's layers and stuff that you know go into it so yeah same page what are we doing here why are we here (laughs) um are you familiar with the dogma 95 movement I am familiar with it. Yeah. I think I I always love that. And I'd love to get your sort of perspective on it because so for those unfamiliar, it's essentially, you know, these, this group of filmmakers, um, European filmmakers, um, Thomas Vinterberg in particular, who did like another round and it won an Oscar. That's not a dogma 95 movement movie, but he was part of that. And really the whole point was like, listen, as long as you have a good story, the rest of it doesn't matter. And, you know, they have the crappiest sound, like mini DV type footage, but it, but some of the best movies came out of it. So I'm just curious your perspective and maybe you disagree that they are great movies. I don't know. Um, 
I think it was great, honestly. And it's funny. I think there were precursors to independent film now. Strict rules. Like, you had to adhere by to shoot on and do. Like, you couldn't bring any lights. You had to use naturally what's in the location. Um, which I'm like, no, you, you, you can bring one light or two or a minivan full. Um, but they were really onto something earlier on than what filmmakers are now getting used to. And, and oftentimes you'll notice a lot of big time filmmakers shoot as if it is an independent film. Like, oh, we got one light and we got a camera. Great. Let's go shoot. You know, I, I think Christopher Nolan's actually known for just the speed and wanting to shoot a big production as if it's like an independent film. Um, so they were onto something. And I, I really admire and respect it because you are basically boiling it down to what are we trying to tell? What's the story? What's the scene? Um, I would love to see filmmakers apply that Dogma 95 aesthetic or um, what I mean by aesthetic is like the decisions that Dogma 95, you know, style to uh, like science fiction or horror or, you know, stuff that really involves a lot of visual or special effects, because I think that could elevate those projects more because it makes it feel more human to a degree uh, rather than like purely animation where you know, doing everything in the computer and we're going to render it out and just shooting an actor on a green screen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think the person who probably gets closest to that is, is probably James Cameron with Avatar because um, he doesn't call it motion capture and rightfully so he calls it performance capture and he just works with the actors and captures the performance. And then from there, he really, you know, builds the story and goes from there. And there's a lot to admire about that. And I, I wouldn't be surprised that there's a lot of, thinking going on in his head that's a lot like independent film like why am i here why is my character here doing this or that um so with dogma 95 I, it's just like and i love thomas Vindenberg's movie another round that was actually an inspiration for us on this movie one of our references was another round um and it was you know handheld it was embracing the actors finding location the camera was very much a character in the movie as the other characters. And that's how we approached it with this. Um, and so it's hugely, it, I think it's so influential that you don't even know it. Like, you know how you cut to a different, like editing is so influential. Like when you cut from a shot to a shot, people are just assuming that's what you have to do in filmmaking. I think that's what Dogma 95 has done now. It's just so influential that, yeah, it's expected you're doing this. It's like, like Doc 95. I don't, why is this even a conversation? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm curious, um, do you work with a lot of visual effects and um, and sort of leading you in particular, if you do, you know, I've heard Roger Deakins talk a lot about this, where cinematographers are essentially um, not involved in the VFX process. And then, you know, the VFX people through no fault of their own necessarily um, but they don't know these conversations and they'll light it a certain way and they'll do it a certain way. And it's like, it's ends up being inadvertently in opposition with the vision of the film. And he's someone that in particular tries to be like involved with the effects and to be like, here's, here's how you fix it. You know, here's um, what you're going for. Um, not much visual effects happens on the independent films that I've shot, but I am aware of this. And um, my opinion, and I've been fortunate enough uh, I'm part of the union, the uh, International Cinematographers Guild, and they actually did training with us on shooting for LED volumes. And the training that they came across with us that I completely agree with is everyone needs to be on the same page before anything starts to happen. Um, the vision has to be unified across the board. Um, and so Deacons is on the right path, of course, like trying to be involved with visual effects and say, hey, you know, if you're going to be doing this, this is how I'm going to light the scene. Make sure you keep it consistent with that. 
um, is sometimes easier said than done because unfortunately the way the process is laid out, it's production is very siloed from post-production in the sense that we shoot assets that then visual effects goes on to um, work with. And sometimes it works out great and seamless and other times it's two uh, immovable objects or an, an immovable object, you know, clashing with an unmovable, unstoppable force, you know. I totally butchered that phrase, but you get the idea. (laughs) Um, And it really comes down to a lack of communication between the visual effects team and the production team of what we're shooting and what they need and what we need from them. And so a good line of communication and pre-vis and, you know, sharing images back and forth and, you know, not only the cinematographer being there occasionally during post-production to make sure things are going well, but for the visual effects team, they'd be on production as well to make sure things are going well on production so they can succeed on their end. Because sometimes you have to relight things in post because it's just not working with what, you know, ultimately the visual effects needed to be for whatever this pseudo project is. Um it's different in animation because everything happens in reverse on animation. You edit your movie before you make anything. So essentially, once you start hitting the render, everyone is on the exact same page because we all know the exact movie we're making. But with live action, it's the other way. We're all figuring out what kind of movie we're making. And then we're all just kind of waiting for the final edit to be done with everything that's already been finished. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, like, um, yeah. So it's very, a hard- uh, uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, when you see the final movie um, with Always Lola and, you know, the, the the shape that it takes, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm just curious, like, is it in general as you envision, um, you know, and if there are differences? Yeah, I, I don't know. Just curious about your thoughts in general. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting because oftentimes when I shoot a movie, I don't get to see a rough cut or even a final cut until maybe a year, year and a half later. And at that point, you know, I've forgotten a lot of what we've shot or what we've done. And so I'm starting to be like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Or this is, you know, it's still vaguely the movie I had in my mind, you know, like overall. But the it's those fine details that you forget that you see how it comes across in the edit or a decision they made in the edit and they created a new fine detail that you really start to appreciate. And as time goes on and you forget about the movies you shoot and rewatch them, you start to realize like, oh, wow, like this is a lot better than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> a lot better than I remember. I, did, I can't believe I made that decision. Like that was a great decision. Um, sometimes seeing an edit, you, you, this happens with actors, this happens with cinematographers. You're like, why did you pick that take? You should have picked the other one. You know, for cinematographers, it's easy. Like, that take was out of focus. You should have picked the other one. And the easy answer is, well, it's the better performance. And we're here for performance, not for, you know, cinematography. <laughs> well, what's funny, uh, speaking of that, um, you know, yeah, there's a the, the famous shot in Titanic. There, there's one shot in the sequence, the bow of the ship with Kate Winslet and Leo that's mm-hmm. out of focus. And I say that, uh, because James Cameron in the audio commentary himself points it out. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's just kind of funny to me because I, I, I guess if there is a question, um, in many ways, a lot of independent filmmakers that I see sometimes stop themselves from ever even like trying a movie for the simple fact of like, oh, it's not going to be perfect. And it's like, this is Titanic, mm-hmm. one of the most mm-hmm. around movies in the world. And like yeah. one of the most iconic shots 
I promise like no average audience member. I didn't even know, like I'm trained, yeah. you know, but like you're so swept up in the emotion. If James yeah. Cameron literally didn't point it out to me, I would have never known it's out of focus. You know Absolutely. So uh, I'm just curious, like, I guess, you know, to round things out, advice for young filmmakers, right? You mm -hmm. know, my advice is always like, listen, just go do it. Um, you know, part of the charm of indie filmmaking is that it is trying to be different than just Hollywood blockbusters and, you know, to, to, to lean into that as opposed to, you know, berate yourself for not having all the, the bells and the whistles and yeah, have at it and, and learn from it. And, you know, in many ways, like try to make it as cheap as possible if you can. So that way, like, it's just your own personal film school. And, you know, if it does well, it does well. But like, if you fail, it's, it's all good. You learned, you know, and you didn't spend, you know, a million dollars doing it. So. You're absolutely right. I think with filmmakers today, and I'm going to put the flag in the, in the ground now, plant the flag in the ground now. Um, we're going to be seeking more and more movies and artists are going to seek more and more styles that remind us that there's a human touch involved in this production. And um, it reminds me back earlier on when I was in um, film school and I was reading about how Martin Scorsese shot Hugo. Great movie, gorgeous movie. Um, and at the time, everything was being shot in 3D because it was just the thing to do. You shot a movie in 3D if it was like a big budget movie. And there were two ways you could do 3D back then. You could shoot 3D with two cameras and like a crazy 3D rig. It's huge, it's heavy, it's cool looking, but it's also a mess to manage. Or you can do the 3D in post. And Scorsese opted for the latter to do it on production with two big crazy cameras rigged for a 3D rig. And the reason he said he wanted to do that is because he loves the imperfections that can happen on a production. You know, he's he's done plenty of movie where a first AC pulls focus at the wrong moment. And that turns out to be a brilliant choice, even if it was on accident, because he's like, oh, that was great. Let's use that in the edit. And he wanted to allow that space of imperfection to happen with a 3D rig. And I've kind of lived by that ever since, because we have to remind ourselves there's a little bit of flaw into the production. Um, it reminds us that we're, hu we're human, it reminds us that there's someone behind the camera telling the story and not in a way that's like, oh, look at me, we're making a camera, but more in a sense of like, oh, this is real, this is human. And I think with growing use of artificial intelligence and cameras, just, and not just artificial intelligence, cameras just getting better at keeping people in focus, visual effects getting faster and better at cleaning things up, making things look cleaner and better we're going to have a really sterile looking cinema landscape that people are going to be pining for things that remind us that this is a human handmade project that we're watching. And, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wring my hands or break my back trying to make something look so perfect. I would rather focus on, am I going to make you cry? I'm going to make you laugh. Are you going to enjoy this movie? Are you going to be thinking about my movie when you're driving home or the next day rather than, oh, that was out of focus, these amateurs. I don't care about that. I'm more focused on, am I going to leave a lasting impression with you? And are you going to connect with my characters? Well, you've certainly done that with Always Lola. I mean, I know, uh, you know, it's not just you. It's, it's a whole production, um, you know, actors, director, the rest of the crew. But uh, I mean, just the the run of film festivals alone speaks volumes and it is out and has been out since uh let's say mid-december um and it is getting amazing reviews and i think i think all that's felt you know rightfully so so um yeah 
whatever imperfections there are, I don't know them. You know. Well, thank you very much. I, it's very kind of good to say. If this movie, I think, is very important. Um, it's important to me, and it's, I think it's important to a lot of people. I'm very happy it's out there. I'm very happy for Jeff and Laura, the producer of the movie. Um, they did a fantastic job. They got a great team of people together to make this movie. And you can tell when you watch the movie, you can tell there are is genuine heart and soul put into this project. And I can't wait to see what they do next. And I'm hoping to be with them on it. Yeah, it'll be fun. And you know what? Um, just as a side, I know it has not technically anything to do with you, but I remember Jeff early on, you know, he submitted to a couple of film festivals and, you know, he wasn't getting the, the correct response. And then and then what you guys did, Marina Del Rey, um, we also did Marina Del Rey, like it felt like so symbiotic and that just really kicked it off into gear. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just the wherewithal, because, you know, I remember telling Jeff, like, just stick with like, it's it's going to find its audience. Like, I get it. It sucks. Yeah. But every like I always go to like writing, you know, Brene Brown talks about she could fill a whole football stadium of rejection letters. This is Brene Brown, like, you know, just author of the century, if you will. So, um, you know, I, and 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 to be vindicated in that way, I, to, to know like he stuck with it and it found its audience. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for I'm proud of you guys and, and all that stuff. You know, I'm still trying to shoot more movies and I'm still, you know, kicking away at it. And I'm realizing like you just got to keep doing them. And you got to love what you got to do because it, it's going to take a while. Um, and Jeff saw that and now he's getting the fruit of his labors. I mean, the movie's out and it's getting really, really good reviews. And, you know, I just I can't wait to see where he's going to go and for your stuff, too. Well, thank you. Much appreciated. Um, in the meantime, where can uh, people follow your career? Obviously, like IMDb, um, but any anything more direct as well? Uh, I'm, I'm very active on Instagram. I'm very active on Mastodon, which is the alternative to Twitter now, which I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> I'm sure we could put my links somewhere. Um, but on yeah, Instagram, yeah. it's easy to find. It's AJ Young DP. Uh, Mastodon is new. It's harder to find still. So we'll put the link down there. <laughs> Sounds good. Yes. All, all, all the links to always Lola, the socials in the description box. So definitely, uh, click those through and you know, dive, dive in deep. And I'll also, uh, you know, I'll include like Jeff's interviews with uh, other people as well. So you get the full, I, I, I like it, you know, like you can really deep dive this whole movie. And I think there's a lot there as well. So yeah, because um, we're I, losing DVD. So we need those special features. They're right <laughs> here. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for tuning in and, uh, you know, feel free to comment down below with any questions and things like that. Maybe we could do a round two or something like that, or, you know, We'll just answer how we answer.